As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome, listeners, to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my great friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? I'm good. I just want to thank the listeners for coming along this journey with us. I get to talk about these games that I love and share my joy and explain to you why I love this, these things so much. So I want to thank everyone for listening and being on this lovely trip with us. How are you today, Mark? That's so sweet, Walker. That's so sweet you're going to give me a cavity. And I know who could fill that cavity, honey. Oof. All right. So this is a podcast about board games. First, we're going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Then we're going to talk about the games we played this week. And then we're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't really matter. Then we're going to talk about our topic of the week, which is gatekeeping. I was going to have some sort of offhanded remark about you know we're going to be talking about mark and his favorite pastime or something blah 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 but <laughs> that is not fair i know i it, it was it was a low blow and low hanging fruit and all that other stuff so usual. i decided to yeah so exactly one year ago mark we reviewed a game called how do you pronounce that gentiles yeah, no gentiles <laughs> Gen there's, there's no L, so it's not Gentiles. That's not what it's about. Genties? Well, I mean, I suppose it is about Gentiles, but it, it, it's pronounced Gentis, apparently. That's the Latin. Gentis. That's the Latinist pronunciation. Yes. <laughs> so Gentis is this fabulous game. It has, one of the, it has like the same sort of timing mechanism where you have this allotted time at the top of your board, and every action takes up a certain amount of time and has this entry mechanism where you can, you know, double up hourglasses for a penalty, stuff like that. Has a little bit of area majority sort of on the map. Has this very interesting back and forth with your, with these, uh, what, I don't know, what do you want to call them, citizens or your nobles, where... You have a minimum, maximum. It's sort of like a seesaw that goes back and forth with them. So what do you, what do you remember? I remember Gentis being so forgettable that when I saw that this was the Aurus this week, I had to try to remember anything about it other than it being so incredibly forgettable. Wow. Haven't thought okay, it. Haven't then. played it since we reviewed it. Haven't even thought about it. Most other games, even if I thought they were mediocre, I might have thought about them over the course of the past year. Gentis, I just traded away shortly after we reviewed it, haven't looked back, and I have no regrets. 
All right, then. Uh, maybe I'll I'll talk a little bit more about things that I remember then. <laughs> I had this. Uh, well, I remember that had the this... time system disappointed me because it just felt like worker placement. It was just you have a certain number of workers and you can go and place them and take certain amounts of things and that. I... Yeah, it didn't seem swingy enough, right? They were all like either one or two time, right? So, like you said, it's it corresponds to you know placing one or two workers really when you get down to it. If you compare it to something else that we played recently, like Australia, which had the same notion, the same like broad notional idea of expending time to do various things. In Australia, I actually felt it. There was, you know, you had to take sometimes actions that took you out of the turn order for a couple of turns, but it was worth it versus less efficient actions that might be more expensive or less opportune, but at least you're back in the turn order more frequently. There, I actually felt like time was involved as opposed to Gentis, where, again, I don't remember a whole lot about the game, but I don't remember the time element coming together nearly the way I wanted it to. I think it's, was it Red November or Red October? I keep forgetting what they called that game. There was a, a game called The Submarine where it was on fire and you're racing around. November. It, I think it used no Red November and it used this mechanism yes. best so far that, I, you know, because you could have a huge swingy turn where you use like, you know, 40 time or something ridiculous and someone only uses one or two and it really mattered then, you know, how far you moved up the time track. But anyway, this game, it had also another little homeland track where you could put out, you know, buildings and stuff and it sort of gave you, uh, bonuses. You could use them and modify some actions or get some actions and had these interesting cards too. So you had to sort of think ahead which ones you wanted to get because they all triggered off of each other and, and you had to put your nobles in certain positions to, in order to qualify to get them. You seem to have very fond memories of this game. I, I did. I really liked it. We played an edition that was, I really liked the art style of this. It was very minimalistic and I really like how it looked. It was like sort of like, uh, you know, like, uh, ancient writings type thing. And I remember it being an interesting game. You should have asked to keep it. I would have given it to you. Who has time to play? That's what it mean. Keep it. It's like a year old. Who plays <laughs> year old games? God, who's got time? So that is the game we were, we reviewed exactly one year ago. I would like to thank you, Walker, and this may be tempting fate, for not using my least favorite board gaming word in the description of what kind of game Gentis was. It is a word that has been trademarked by Tasty Minstrel to refer to their deluxe versions, and I refuse to use it on this podcast. And if you if you now, having said this, <laughs> say the word, I will edit it out into oblivion. <laughs> And there's like a slow pause, and there's like a, a, a static. And I can start up again. I can now see you the fighting the better angels of your week. nature, Walker. <laughs> That's right. So, the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Well, I was told that there was a game that came out before Brass that is better than Brass. Yes. And I said, okay, well, let's play this game, Mark. This is a game by Martin Wallace, put out by Tree Frog Games. The game is called Age of Industry. Uh, minor correction, it was a it was after Brass, not before Brass. Seriously? Yeah. So The he look of it makes it look... Oh, I see. The Sorry, I'm getting confused because Brass was reprinted. Yes. The original Brass. The original Very Brass, sorry. yes. Now I understand. So, but there's no whiskey in this game. Sorry to say. Well, that's all, that most... was only in Brass Birmingham. So there was Brass Simpliciter put up a tree frog. Then there was Age of Industry. And then the reprint of Brass was called Brass Lancashire. And then there was a redevelopment of Brass that included whiskey that was called Brass Birmingham. That's a lot of Brass. It's a fair amount of Brass. Is there a band? <laughs> Go no. on, Walker. What did you think of Age of Industry? 
I I like it has much of the same trappings of of brass of you know trying to lock out roots and and try to convert your buildings and and uh, maximize your actions. You know what I mean? You can you get to convert as many as your buildings that you can. So you want to sort of get them all set up and make sure that other your opponents can't do the same or take your sources of conversion away from you. So and then you you know get a nice big turn. Making sure you have money all the time. I liked it. I would play it anytime. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm one of the minority who prefers Age of Industry to Brass because now, now part of this was because I played Age of Industry first. I've had a somewhat love-hate relationship with a lot of Martin Wallace designs. I find a lot of his designs over-chromed and very cumbersome with you know rough edges and actions you almost never take. And this is true even in my favorite Martin Wallace design, which is probably still Byzantium. I have a soft spot in my heart for his historical stuff, you know, back to his historical wargaming roots. But Age of Industry is my favorite of his economic games. And it preserves some of the, the Martin Wallace elements. The recurring joke in, certainly uh, from my friend Josephus, is that you know it's a Martin Wallace game where the first thing you do is go into debt. And Age of Industry definitely keeps that. You start with no money and you can't build anything without money, so the first thing you do is you take a loan. But just as an example of how Age of Industry is smoothed out over, say, some of his other economic games, you don't have to take an action to take out debt, and you therefore aren't forced to, when taking out debt, to calculate exactly how much cash you're going to need going forward. I don't automatically object to planning. Lots of my favorite games involve planning, but those one, that's one of those cases where a minor miscalculation can really put you behind the eight ball and really front load a lot of the decision making in ways that I don't find pleasant. So Age of Industry, there's a money crunch. You have to be efficient. You have to worry about paying interest for your loans. You have to worry about trying to get the maximum return and the timing at which you get your return. But you don't have to worry about calculating precisely. It's like, oh, no, I, I'm $1 off, so I guess I have to waste another action and get more interest just to take out another loan. I, I don't find that particular part appealing. Generally speaking, there might be exceptions. And you get all that other good stuff. Like you said, you have to worry about the spatiality. You have to worry about the supply and demand of coal and iron. That's another virtue of Age of Industry. It has a whole bunch of math, a plethora, as, as Michael Walker would say. Yeah, that's the comment I was going to make. I can't really compare it with Brass too much. I've only played Brass once. So, but I was going to say, I know Brass doesn't have multiple maps and, and we looked at a bunch of the maps. They all look very interesting and you could see how the way the supply and demand would completely change depending on, you know, what map you played on. We played on the New England map, which people don't recommend that as your first entrance into Age of Industry, and so perhaps that was a little overambitious, but some people also complain that the German map, which is the other the the two maps that come in the base game, some people complain that the German map is a little too vanilla. The New England map introduces ships, and that's one of the primary ways you get coal into the system, and we had a lovely little bit in the mid-game where there were two separate economies going on that were not connected. That was lovely until they were connected, and then the economy shifted. You get a lot of, as I say, you get a lot of the quality economic management and manipulation in Age of Industry that you get in some of the other Martin Wallace games without a lot of the rough edges that, again, tend to characterize a lot of Martin Wallace games. Like, for example, just, uh, I know people love brass. I'm not coming for you. Don't fight me, IRL. But you don't have things like the Birkenhead connection or changing from canals to railroads or the fact that the income track starts to do weird things near the middle of the game where it's a linear progression until it's not a linear progression. Then it resumes being a linear progression later in these weird humps and just these weird little bits of system mastery that never really appealed to me. And so Age of Industry is definitely my preferred version of choice. 
And if and when we start to get gaming in person again, we could even try some of the other weirder maps. There are two-player maps. There are maps that introduce mining into the system. There are maps that introduce... My favorite one is the Soviet Russia map, which has this lovely little absurd bit of Stalinist economic planning where you're told to go and do arbitrary things that make no economic sense, but if you do, the government gives you a kickback. It's lovely. I, I think it's marvelous. The fan work in some of the Age of Industry maps is truly, truly excellent, and that is one of the reasons why I prefer it. So I'm very glad you enjoyed it. What what one thing Age of Industry does have is that uh, turn mechanism, is that you track how much money everyone spends, and then it changes the turn order every round. I really think that's interesting. I've never seen another economic game do that before, that particular way. I'm sure there are others, but off the top of my head, I can't think of any. And you're right, it, it tends to influence when you want to do the cheap things, when you want to do the expensive things, because there's a, there's an ebb and flow into when you're spending a lot of time building those big ticket items, and when you need to worry about, say, doing smaller things, or even just drawing cards and preparing for the next turns. And it is one of those areas where if you're last in turn order, you can look at things and say, well, I could build now, or I could just draw some cards, and then I'll be first next turn, so I'm effectively taking two turns in a row. And you're right, that's a, that's a neat little trade-off. And that is Age of Industry by Martin Wallace. I got to try a game called Aquatica. Aquatica was recommended by a listener. And just to give you an indication, while I'm talking about Aquatica, I'm going to be setting up a game of Aquatica. It's got kind of the, oh, I'm done. Sorry, the game's over now. Uh, anyway, as I was saying, I'll set up another game while I'm talking. It's got kind of the same card manipulation element that Concordia has, and oh, it's 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 done. It's over. The game's done now. Oh, it, all right. Anyway, it was designed by Ivan uh, Tazovsky and put up by Cosmodrome and distributed by Arcane Wonders last year. And oh, look, I finished another game. It's look at that. That's three games of Aquatica. It is, as I'm implying, incredibly fast. It is super fast. So fast that I don't know what to make of it. There's not really engine building because you don't really spend much time building your engine. I'll start with what's cool about the game. You can acquire these cards either by one of two different currencies that are these locations. And the theme of the game is that you're kind of diving. And to represent that, you kind of go down a list of benefits that a certain location will give you. And you go down that list either when you use the benefit or when you activate some other special ability that lets you go down the list. The goal is to get to the bottom of the list and then activate another card effect so you can score the location. Locations don't give you any points until you've gone through the entire list and then scored them. So you tend to try to organize this puzzle of, okay, I want to use this Benny here and then I have to set myself up to use this other Benny. Or, as I say, you can just take a special ability and just sail past the list and not use any of the Bennies. And that part, I think, is really neat. The scoring element of Aquatica I find quite appealing in gaming out benefits. If for some reason, and I don't know why, it seems so much more appealing to try to game out when to use various benefits as opposed to gaming out how to pay various kinds of costs. Because they very easily could have uh, inverted it. Instead of saying, well, once this location gives you $2, slide down to the next location on the list. Instead of that, they could have said, well, pay $2 to slide down to the next location. But for some reason, it just seems more enjoyable to have this cascade of bennies that you have to figure out how to use. It's an interesting little challenge. That being said, as, as, I, as I said, it's, it's very, 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 very short such that I'm not sure how much there is there. And this isn't purely a diss against short games. Some of my favorite games are very short. But I'm not sure whether, for example, when you're purchasing new cards, whether it makes any sense to consider anything past this hand of cards. So everything becomes incredibly tactical, to the point where I'm not really sure what kind of strategic horizon 
exists in the game at all. Uh, suffice to say, it's sufficiently quick and engaging that I want to try it a few more times. And I do like how it uses the same card play element that Concordia uses, and the, the same kind of card play element that has been used in a number of other places, like Lewis and Clark, where you're, you know, building a, not really so much as building a deck as building a hand of cards that you can then eventually do a reset and get all the cards back. The scoring is much more straightforward than in either Concordia or Tungaru. And it does have, I have to say, these adorable plastic manta pieces. You get these exhaustible resource benefits that are in the form of trained mantas. And when you use them, you flip them over onto their backs of their bellies. I can't remember which. The rulebook went into detail about their anatomy. Uh, that part I mostly glazed over. The theme is, you know, very sort of su- uh, undersea kingdom fantasy thing. Doesn't do anything for me, really. Them's the visual trappings. So I, I want to I wanna go back to Aquatica. I'm not sure if it's just a smooth experience or if it's actually quality decision-making. But I'm sufficiently intrigued that I'm willing to go back to it. And that's my early experiences so far with Aquatica. So, Mark, at any given time, I'm playing about a dozen games on Board Game Arena, and I try not to play the same ones over and over again. I get, with our with our group, they constantly send me invites. I'm declining. But when Russian Railroads comes up, I just can't not take it. I just enjoy Russian Railroads. It's like this, this puzzle. It's a, like an old school worker placement where placement matters, where there's definite blocking, and you have to adapt to the spaces that are available. And it just makes me look forward even more to this, this edition that's coming out soon. Cause I haven't played any of the other, you know, the USA or Moscow or any German. other map. So I'm looking German. So I'm can't wait. This is a game that's put out by Z-Men games. I think in North America, hands them Gluck. Normally it's designed by Helmut Ole. I just love my Russian railroads and I need to, I need to get off my normal, I seem to be playing it the same way every time. I seem to be just concentrating on the main line that's on the top and completely like have never used the other two rails. And I think I need to just to try to see because I'm, I am sure that they're not there just for looks. <laughs> I'm sure that it's balanced out somehow that you can get points from the other rails. I'll just have to take, I'll just have to, you know, force myself to, you know, experience a different way of playing. Before the Ultimate Railroads edition comes out, you should reintroduce me to Russian Railroads. I've been wanting to try it again, so you should show it to me on Board Game Arena. I'm, wait, didn't, didn't haven't I been saying that for about a year now? I think I've been saying that for you about have, a year now. I will put it on the schedule. Okay. On the topic of returning to things, I wanted to go back to Skytier. Skytier is a MOBA-style game that we talked about about a year ago during the great MOBA Roundup review session. And Skytier is one that you had strong dislike for, and I had I was very disappointed by, because one of the things that I like in MOBA-style games is when they take seriously this notion of minions. When minions matter, and manipulation of minions, and pushing the lane with minions is significant. I like the other ones as well. I like MOBA-style games where minions are kind of an afterthought, like Elo Darkness, like Radiant. Those are two very interesting MOBA games where the minions are largely absent, but I I do really like it when the minions are there, like Guards of Atlantis and Roman Bones. And Sky Tier takes the minions seriously, but I, I, I found it very disappointing. So I wanted to go back to it. And I found a willing partner in this endeavor in Dr. Stallone, and so we played Sky Tier in a very, very well-supported tabletop simulator mod, by the way. There's a very active online community, had tournaments, the whole deal. 
I liked it better this time, but I still found it disappointing. There are a number of things that I don't like about Sky Tier. One of them is the aesthetics. I, I just don't find the character roster particularly appealing. And when you're going to have a character-based game like this, it's good to find a couple that, that really grasp your attention. And that's purely personal. Other people can look at the same roster and find it super interesting. So, so setting all that aside. But there's just a number of awkward edges... Like how every character, when you activate them, they get to do three things, but they can't do the same thing more than once. Okay, fine. There's two different ways to kind of sort of attack things, but only one of those attacks can be used against minions. Okay, fine. There's a bizarre action called skirmish, which is sometimes necessary, but it's a very strange... On top of that, it, it there are not enough rounds, I find, to give it a real good sense of back and forth. One of the things that is so great about Guards of Atlantis, or Rum and Bones, really, is you really get the sense of an ebb and flow in terms of the different minions going on. But in my experience, games of Skytear, admittedly somewhat limited, uh, you don't really have enough rounds for that kind of experience to go. And generally speaking, uh, in all three times I've played the game, you basically choose one lane to push, one lane to give up on, and just try to manage the bleeding, and that's more or less how it goes. And so that kind of undercuts the aspect of the minion management that I like, and also just how expensive it is in a very real way to attack minions. You know, you're giving up your entire attack uh, for a hero in order to kill a single minion, so the opportunity cost feels significant. Anyway, Skytear's fine. It was okay. I, I, I enjoyed it, but... In a in a, in a an environment where there are lots of different mobile style games, I don't like the way that it harnesses the conventions, and I don't like the cast nearly as much as I like some of the other mobile style games. I'm glad I went back to it. I'm glad I was able to get a, a further appreciation of the kind of cards that are available because this this in a very serious way is one of the reasons why I can't really get into Skytear. It's very much like Warhammer Underworlds in that it is semi unrestricted deck building. So there's a massive universe of cards, and if you really want to do well, if you really want to take the game seriously, you're going to have to get into deck building. And not deck building the way that, say, Aristea does it, or uh, or even like Dominion does it. This is not a deck construction thing where you have a small number of choices and you pick one. This is a deck construction environment where you've got a large card list and you're supposed to tailor it to your playstyle. And even if I were in the mood to explore Skytier further, I don't think I would be in the mood to jump into that kind of deck construction environment. But that is very much the bag of lots of people. So again, uh, you know, if you compare Skytier to Radiant, for example, in Radiant, you just pick a character and they come with a bunch of cards. And that's it. That's the construction you've decided. As opposed to Skytier, where it's like, pick whatever cards you want, go crazy. And I, I'm just not at, in, in a position where I'm in, inclined to do that. So I'm glad I went back to Skytier. Probably won't be going back to it again. Speaking of going back, I enjoy Lagrange, Mark. It's a design by Michael Keller and put out by Spielworks. And this is like, uh, you, you know, you like multi-use cards. This takes multi-use cards to the next level. Uh, each card can be used for, I think, like six different things. You're either increasing your delivery rate or increasing your crops or putting it under your board for a special ability or putting it above your board for orders that you have to fulfill. I'm not going to go on too much about this game because it plays terribly on Board Game Arena. It's one of these games <laughs> that has several phases, you know, that you have to walk, go through. And at every phase, everyone has an opportunity to do extra actions. So it has to cycle through everyone mm. on every action that's done if they want to do an extra action. But once all of this lockdown is over, I really do want to return to it and see if I can get the, this feel for this game again, because I only played it a few times. I, I Like I said, I love this multi-use cards. I love the decision-making at the beginning where you have to decide where these cards are going to go, because... 
you know, they're useful in so many ways and you get to uh, upgrade goods and fulfill orders. That's sort of my jam. There's like this area majority map that you're knocking people out of. That's interesting as well. So interested to go back to it. And there's a sub game that's uh, Siesta Time or something they put out afterwards that I yeah, haven't the, played the, at all. The, yeah, the, the, the dice game version, I believe. Yeah. I'm going to have to give that a whirl as well. So that's Lagrange. Not much information, but definitely not for much, much like, you know, like we just talked about last week, we were talking about if my love for Food Chain Magnet wasn't so great, then I definitely probably would not play it online because like we said, there's so many different phases and just waiting for a whole turn to complete. But it's one of those games where there is a lot of thinking to it and sort of planning out your steps. So it's not so, so bad. But anyway, Lagrange, I will not play it again on Board Game Arena asynchronously. That's another game I, I would like very much for you to be able to show me because when it came out, a number of people I respect very, very highly said very good things about it, but I never got a chance to try it. So, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna flop into something else, which is I already talked about Paris Connection. This is another game that does work well on Board Game Arena, especially if you're playing it real time. Like you don't have a lot of time, sort of like Can't Stop or or Yahtzee things or Martian Dice, these things that I play on Board Game Arena when I just, you know, have a few minutes to waste. This is a game where there's six different colors of trains and there's a limited number of pieces for each train. And on your turn, you're either laying out tracks with these trains trying to connect cities to make each color worth more points or you're trading in colors that you don't think are going to be worth any points to get you know, more trains of ones that you do. And then once these, you know, these, these trains run out, cause like I said, they all have a limited number, then it all scores. So it's a very quick, you know, sort of try to figure out which trains are going to be the most, which ones you can get rid of, how you're going to maximize your points. It's one of these things that I think you can knock out in 30 minutes. And it's a very interesting little train game, I guess. Paris connection. I was remiss Walker in last week, not giving you a hard time because you have in the past disparaged Cube Rails games. You yeah, but have, you had is... ne- no, no, hold on. Let me say my okay. piece, Walker. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And Paris Connection is 100% a Cube Rails game. Would you like to admit that you were wrong in the past for being so dismissive of Cube Rails games? I don't. I don't feel this is a because you're not delivering anything. They could be anything that you're laying out there. Cube seems... Rails games almost never involve any pickup and deliver. Some of them do, but it's very rare. All right, all right. <laughs> I'm going to have to start showing you more Cube Rails games because I had, I had thought that you were speaking from a position of authority and not liking them. I'm going to have to Irish gauge you a little bit. I might have to Wabash Cannon you, you ball you a little bit. Hey, I've I've owned uh, Railways of the World since it came out. That is not a Cube I, Rails I love... game, sir. Oh, sad face. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying it's bad. It's and it's not necessarily better or worse for being Cube Rails. It's just Cube Rails refers to a very specific subgenre of kinds of things te- that tend tend to have been characterized by John Borer and Winsome Games. And Paris Connection is a game designed by John Borer and that was originally published by Winsome Games. What do you want? There you go. <laughs> You'll have to introduce me to more then. I look forward to it. I got to play Anachrony. This was the one of the rarest of rare things. A request from Louis. And my general policy is there are a number of people in our acquaintance, Dewey, Louis especially, who will happily play almost anything put in front of them, but almost never request anything. And so when they request something especially, if they request something that I enjoy, I tend to be all over that. 
And so when Louis said, yeah, I, I, I've been, I heard about this game called Anachrony, I'm like, yes, we're there. So we got to play Anachrony. This was without any of the new modules. We have a review copy of the Fractures of Time expansion that was recently fulfilled by Mind Clash Games. And I'm very much looking forward to trying that. I'm probably going to be busting out the new solo modes over the course of the coming week. So wait for that. But this was just the base game of Anachrony. And anybody who is familiar with Mind Clash Games will be able to tell you that they do tend to ship with a lot of uh, additional modules. But even without modules, there's still a lot going on. And Anachrony is a very, very nice worker placement game with, again, a lot going on. One of my chief complaints about Anachrony is that it doesn't seem to leverage its theme quite as nicely as it would want to, because it's about time travel notionally. But the time travel elements in the base game more or less amount to a loan system, where you take out loans from the future and then you pay them back with a time machine that sends the, the materials back in time. And one of the things I'm looking forward to in the Fractures of Time expansion is more time travely type things. For example, in the Fractures of Time expansion, you can cause your workers to be in two places at once, but there's a there's a risk of having some of your machinery go on the fritz as a result if you're not managing managing the temporal faults well enough. You can upgrade your time machine and do various other things. Anyway, but the the base game still has tons and tons of detail. That's one of the reasons why it's hard to get the modules to the table. You know, you've got a couple of new players and you figure, uh, do I really want to go into this separate side module? Do I really want to then explain to them after explaining all the base game? And here's how you go and jump in your giant plastic mech suits and fight monsters, which is this complete other module. And I will say... Despite the fact that I enjoy Anachrony, it's probably my favorite David Turtze design. It's certainly not clean, but it's not with weird extraneous bits like you would find in some of his other work. And not even like you might find in other work, say, by Martin Wallace. You don't tend to find uh, what we would call spiky bits, these trailing actions that don't seem connected to everything else. It's reasonably coherent and cohesive, despite being a, a, a very sprawling game otherwise. And I am looking forward to trying out some more of the modules, but when you play it online, I've said it before frequently, you can play an Anachrony in one of two ways. You can either play it with the giant plastic mech miniatures, or you can play it the wrong way. And unfortunately, in the online implementations, you can only play it the wrong way, which is sad. I was able to confirm, though, because I always had that niggling question in the back of my mind, would I still enjoy Anachrony? If it were shorn of the giant stompy mechs? And now I can definitively answer. Yes, I do enjoy Anachrony even with the giant stompy mechs. Still a mistake. That is not the way to do it. <laughs> but you do what you can with the tools that you have. And so that was my recent experience with Anachrony. Stay tuned for my impressions of Fractures of Time. That reminds me of Tricarion. Because while you're explaining that, I was like, oh, they mind clash, they do Tricarion. And I think I've read the rule books so many times, I feel like I've played it. Because I was like saying, oh, yeah, that was fun. I remember. And it's like, no, Mike, you don't remember. You just remember reading the rule books like six times. You haven't actually had a chance to play it yet. So have you played Tricarion yet? I played it a long time ago. And I don't really remember it all that well because it wasn't taught to me very well. But given my enthusiasm for Anachrony, and especially given my enthusiasm for Cerebri, the Inside World... And my conviction that Mind Clash is definitely one of the top producers of this kind of medium-heavy, sprawling, component-heavy uh, Euro game at a much lower price and a much higher rules quality than a lot of other competitors. Cough, Eagle, Griffin, Cough, Vitalis, or Cough. Uh, I would very much like to return to Tricarion. Agreed. I'll put it in the schedule, sir. Lastly for me, I got to introduce you, Mark, to Carnegie. 
on Board Game Arena. This Walker, is Walker, Walker, by... you're going to get people very mad at us. Apparently, if you're in the know, despite the fact that people do say Carnegie, it's Carnegie. No. I don't want, I don't, look, no, okay, look, everyone send your emails exclusively to Michael Walker and Air Canada. Don't talk to me. I'm saying it right. I'm one of the good ones. Please leave me alone. Don't hurt me. Yeah, I've heard all the time on the news, they'll say, yeah, that person is playing at Carnegie Hall, not (laughs) Carnegie Hall, all the time. So, Carnegie by Xavier George, and uh, the art is done by Eno Tool, so it's quite lovely and it's published by quinted games this is a kickstarter that's going on right now this is in no way sort of endorsing or trying to up it in any way but what did you think of carnegie this is yet another one of the board game arena games that i'll always accept an invitation to i'll do my spiel first i know i just asked you to talk about it mark but you know go ahead it has this action selection system that I just really enjoy. Like right off the beginning of the game, you get to put a place, a piece on the map. And what that does, it puts one of your workers in one of the sectors. And when someone picks a particular action, that sector is going to score, i.e. you pull that worker back. So right off the beginning, you're looking at this action selection. You're trying to figure out, okay, you know, how soon do I want money? Where do I want to start? How am I going to, you know, you're sort of planning four or five turns ahead of time. It's one of these things where you have to constantly move, you know, with the flow, the different actions people take. I'm just enjoying this more and more. I'm worried that it's going to uh, get a little samey after a while because it feels as though you're just doing the same sort of thing, like loading up the tokens to put them out on the board. But I'm feeling that there are subsystems to this game that have yet to be explored. I thought it was all right. It was okay. I, I didn't hate it. By the end of the game, I, I wanted it to be over. I felt I'd seen what it had to, to show. I, I actually feel the ob- I feel I felt it started getting samey right around round you know thirteen of twenty. And the action selection is is kind of cool. I like how it marries one of the four different action types to one of the four different regions or the possibility of making a donation. That kind of trade off is okay. But the way the role selection works. I felt didn't really serve to differentiate players' positions in an interesting way. I, I felt, and you can tell me whether this is common, that in the first three-ish rounds, we were more or less all doing the same thing. It took a while for us to differentiate our positions in any substantive way. And in the 20-round game, if the first three-ish rounds, everyone's going through the motions and doing more or less the same thing, eh, part of me wonders if, if that's really the best way to start. Well, I think that mostly boils down to the fact that the only thing that's really going to change what you're doing is is where you're placed on the board. So it takes a while for your workers to get out there. And it's also due to what buildings you take. Sure. The fact that it's very common that people just go down the line because they want to either A, figure out what each action does or each action is sort of vital to the other actions. So you sort of just like progress along. So everyone's doing the same number of actions. And so it takes a little while to sort of, like you said, divert in different directions because everyone's tableau has to develop still. Hmm. I don't necessarily know if that's why I think we proceeded along the same path for the, for the, for the first few rounds. Actually, uh, Warmboy was pumping the research track real hard. We, in fact, had, had rather lopsided development along the four action tracks. It was just that our, our board positions were so similar that we were doing mo- much of the same thing for the early bits. And that's just a mild critique. I don't want to. I don't want to pretend like it's a huge deal. Uh, one of my chief objections was that it was another tracks on tracks on tracks game. There are four different income tracks. You go up them, and then there are the four income tracks on your board. You you spend resources to go up that, 
And at the end of the day, I didn't feel like I was doing anything. I didn't feel like I was running a company. I didn't feel like I was making donations. That part I was really disappointed by, thematically speaking, right? Because this is about one of the famous capitalist humanitarians in American history. And they talk about how this is about making donations for social welfare and leaving your mark historically. You're you're just buying victory points. That's all you're doing. There's no... Like, why your great public works would in turn be tied to standard Eurogame mechanisms about how many different corporate di- divisions you have in your headquarters. Uh, it doesn't make any thematic sense at all, so you just feel like you're buying victory point achievements. And so I was a little disappointed in that as well. And so at the end of the day, you're right, there is this kind of cool idea of sending your workers out on missions, uh, which, I mean, if you tell me I'm going on a mission, I tend to think of SEAL Team Flicks. Uh, there was not really missions in that sense. They were just sitting around in the Midwest waiting for income to trigger. Uh, You're like, just upset that you didn't finish your meat dragon. <laughs> I did not finish my meat dragon. Actually, I meant to, to to preface this with the fact that we got to stream this. We're streaming every Saturday. So if this is something you want to check out, we play games every Saturday. We try to start at 10 a.m. Eastern. But that might change. But just so in case that's your thing, that's what we're doing. And allow me to stress, most of the time... While actually playing, I save my complaints for later, most of the time. <laughs> this time, I think I was pretty good. Yeah, so at the end of the day, I, I, I didn't really feel like there was anything special to Carnegie. I, I just felt like I was going up various tracks to maximize my score. I was buying corporate divisions so as to maximize my score. I wasn't doing anything really cool. It was a standard sort of resource management efficiency Euro game. I want to do this to upgrade my tracks so when I go and do this, I get more income and then I use the money to buy points. Eh, I've, I've been there, done that. Many times before, it didn't it didn't feel as clean as Xavier Georges' other designs like Inkopolis, and it but it didn't feel as substantial or as interactive as something like, for example, Age of Industry. Very different games, but very similar themes in terms of like spreading industrial influence all over all over the place. Much rather play Age of Industry, uh, different era as well. And I, I will finally point out that the rulebook instructed us to break the law because it specifically says that if there is a tie, the tied players are obliged to shake hands and savor the shared victory. First of all, I object to it when the rulebook tells me how to feel. I'll savor what I want to savor. Thank you very much, Mom. And secondly, it is against the law for me to go and shake Warm Boy's hand because we tied to the game of Carnegie. So uh, I gotta say, Quentin Games, you'll be hearing from my lawyer. It's true. I do have to concede all the facts. It does seem very abstract. There is not much theme to what you're doing in the game. But I still love it. I love it's this clever. being able to plan. Yeah, it, work, it works well together. There is forward planning. You're absolutely right. You need to get your ducks in a row, so it's not a ta- purely tactical affair. It is. It is does have strategic horizons. Uh, but I didn't feel anything particularly compelling. And that was Carnegie by Quinted Games and Javier Georges. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Caverna, we all know, or at least Mark, you know, I love Caverna. And apparently he secretly, he's not telling anyone, but he's teamed up with Friedman Freeze because the name of this expansion is called Frantic Fiends. Apparently now orcs are going to be attacking your mines and little gardens and and crops while you try to chip away for coal and diamonds and rubies. I love the first expansion where, where the dwarves were no more and you played all sorts of unique and interesting races. And now this is just more of the same. I'm hoping to play some 
some Caverna this year. We'll see if that ever pans out. So look out games, frantic fiends for Caverna. We've discussed in the past, Walker, when we're willing to buy the same game multiple times over and over. And uh, I think I found my limit. You and I both adore Sentinels of the Multiverse. I have purchased the base game of Sentinels of the Multiverse twice. There was the base game and then there was a revised edition. Well, now, because Greater Than Games, I think, looked around themselves, looked deep in their souls and said, well, other than Eric Royce and Spirit Island, we don't really have anything in our catalog ever since we said we were done with Sentinels of the Multiverse. So I guess we'll do Sentinels again. There's going to be Sentinels of the Multiverse, the definitive edition, with art that is not consistent with the previous editions, new keywords and therefore rules that are not consistent with the previous editions, and... If you're a Sentinels fan, if you're a, if you're a, a, a deep Sentinels fan like you and I are, you have a black monolith box full to the gills of dozens of heroes, environments, and villains. And why would you want to go down that road again? Because again, it's not compatible with the other stuff. I assume they're going to be re-releasing all the other stuff eventually if this is successful enough. And I, for one, say no. I am 100% on your boat. Like, I'm not sure if the cards that I saw were complete or finished, but I did not like the new layout. I don't like how the printing was so standard. I like the the old cards where it looked like comic book printing. I enjoyed the old artwork, but of course, you know, art is subjective, but I love everything about the old game. I I I, I said this, this sounds curmudgeon-y, like, my stuff's better. <laughs> it's new. I don't like it. But it, it, I just, even, even the, they showed, well, this is more clear wording. And it's like, I, I don't find that any more clear than, than the other, like not clear enough that they have to put out a whole new edition, put it that way. I don't know whether I like the new art. I don't know whether I like the new layout because the overwhelming bias I have is for the hundreds of dollars of stuff I've already got. And I'm not going to, if it were compatible, or at least vaguely visually consistent with what I already had, I might consider imagining replacing some of it. But uh, no, I'm not going to start again. I'm not going to. I'm not going to start from scratch with an entirely new set, especially since I've already bought the base game twice. No, it could be one of these circumstances where, where one maybe people are asking for it and they're sold out everywhere. So it's like, okay, well, we might sure. as well. And they and they want to sort of catch in on other people that, you know, have some of the stuff. But you know, here's a whole new edition that has everything. But anyway, Sandals of the Multiverse Definitive Edition coming soon to a game store near you. So, lastly, from me, Abyss is now out on Board Game Arena. It is an an older game that I remember enjoying. It's all like sort of underworld giant sea creature card collection buying victory point combinations. And uh, I'm looking forward to giving it a try. So Isaac Vega and Lindsay Road, two industry professionals, have formed their own company called Rose Gauntlet Entertainment. And Isaac Vega is an interesting guy and he's done some interesting things. And Lindsay Road has generally not been a frontline game designer in the same way, but has done some interesting stuff. And they've announced some upcoming projects, two of which I just want to flag, because the artwork so far is gorgeous. They've presented in the, the, the teaser artwork. One of them is called After the Dungeon. And details are very scarce. It's early on in development, but they say that it is a cooperative RPG. And I don't know if they mean RPG in the way that 
D&D is an RPG, or an RPG in the same way that, say, Legacy of Dragonhold is an RPG, or RPG in the same way that Gloomhaven is an RPG. Or maybe the same way that Space Hulk is an RPG. <laughs> yes, in the, in the way that it is a lie by Games Workshop. It's supposed to be about telling poignant stories about what happens after you're done looting a dungeon, and I'm all about that. I love stories about failure and about compromise and trade-offs, and I don't like stories about kicking down doors and murdering things. I like stories about what happens in between those things. So I'm very much looking forward to that. There's also going to be a roguelite deck-building game, which is very much the rage in in the PC game development called Gone to Gaia. And this is going to be Isaac Vega's first video game that he's working on. And so if you like Slay the Spire or any one of the dozens of derivative-type games, it seems to be in that kind of wheelhouse. But anyway, as I say, the, the teaser artwork looks, looks very good. And I have to say that Rose Gauntlet Entertainment's uh, commitment to a diversity of experiences and storytellers sounds amazing and definitely more of what the industry needs. And so I'm going to very much look forward to the output of Rose Gauntlet Entertainment. Finally, I have a brief update on some of the issues that we addressed a couple weeks ago with respect to Daniela Tashini and Phil Eklund. There's going to be, I'm going to go into more depth in this in an episode of uh, SWAT Guy Lab for our Patreon listeners this week. So if you want me to go more in depth in this, I will. But I just have some brief updates. One of them is we mentioned that the CEO of Ion Game Design, Basimu Yannick, said that no longer would Eklund be putting any of his racist, vile nonsense in his rule books, while Phil Eklund has published a statement saying that as far as he's concerned, his contract grants him complete creative control over what gets put out. And so as far as he's concerned, it will still continue to be put out in the same way that it has been before. I will merely note that Phil Eklund is wrong about mostly everything. And so it is unsure what the contract says or, or who's owed what. But we don't know whether Ion Game Design will be publishing Eklund essays going forward or not. Uh, we have a statement from the CEO saying they won't, and we have a statement from Felicklin saying they will. So more on that to follow, possibly. And I just want to note that Daniela Tashini has very much been stepping up his apology game. Uh, his most recent statement has been one that accepts full responsibility for his privilege and for his uh, blinkered approach to accessibility and race relations. And I just want to say that this is very much a step in the right direction. Not that it's for me to approve or disapprove of anything that he says necessarily, but I am glad to see that he's dealing with the issue seriously and certainly more seriously than his previous statements would have. So insofar as our policies will evolve and adapt to the changing situations, we will keep you apprised. But the developments on that front specifically seem to be very promising. As I say, more to follow. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is gatekeeping. With more and more people playing board games, I just want to make sure that everyone is aware that I played board games before it was cool. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Let's be clear. We are far from the top the target of this topic, but does not exclude us from bringing us to the attention and being part of the solution and not part of the problem. I don't know. I, th I think we need to, every once in a while, need to remind ourselves of some modes of address that are, are toxic. I mean, I certainly do. You're better at this than I am, but I think we can both get a reminder every now and then about ways to talk about the hobby and the ways to leverage authority in ways that are less about gatekeeping and more about criticism. Oh, no. You see, I think you misunderstand. I'm not saying that we're not the target. 
the like we're never targeted by gatekeeping is what I'm trying to say. Oh, I'm not saying that we're we shouldn't be the right. target of this conversation. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. My apologies. That's okay. Also, it is not a problem exclusive. In, sorry, it's not a problem inclusive to our hobby. Every hobby has them. Our hobby just had them first, and they're worse <laughs> than the rest, and the rest are just wannabes. Our gatekeepers are the best gatekeepers, <laughs> and the other gatekeepers are poser gatekeepers. That's Brilliant. right. All it's right. weird. Why? Do, okay, I, I just have a question before we get into this. Why do subcultures do this? Especially subcultures, right? Because you're, you're right. All hobbies, a lot of endeavors, like sports fans have gatekeepers. Mainstream, more mainstream stuff has gatekeepers, although gaming is more mainstream than we tend to think it is. Uh, but it, it's weird. The only analogy that I can come up with, and this is just speculation, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, is kind of like the discourse that I hear about student loans. You know, you hear primar- primarily in the U.S., you talk about for- debt forgiveness for student loans. And you have all these people show up and say, no, 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 I paid my debt back and it broke my back. So we have to make sure that everyone else is crippled by debt the way that I was. And I have to imagine that in a subculture, it's like, look, I suffered for my obscure interests for years. Now everyone else has to suffer too, or they're not real aficionados like I am. True. The one thing I have is the the next line here is, is that being said, there are toxic people in our community and it might be this sudden flow of all these new players that they feel as though it's going to change. Right. Okay. All these new people are coming in. They think that things might change and they don't like change. So it's might be a little bit of pushback. That was just one thing from all the reading I did might have been, might be a reason why there's this sort of gatekeeping behavior exists. You're right. That's that, you know, that's probably true. It's a desire to maintain credibility and a fear of, of, of change that, that could probably drive a lot of this behavior. I mean, I definitely think that people take themselves way too seriously. And this is one of the reasons why our podcast is called what it's called. Like, we, we take games very seriously, and we take criticism very seriously, and we take the issues very seriously. Ourselves, we do not take seriously at all. Well, that's what I have right at the top here as well. How can we be defined as gatekeepers, right? Just to get this out of the way. Sure. One thing that can be said is that we only talk about popular games, like games that sort of get a little bit of buzz, or games that are on the top i'm not saying that we do mark i'm just saying these are mm-hmm. things that could be said and I, okay. and I don't think i don't think that is true i think i think you much more than i uh, uh see all these indie games try them out read the rules and bring to attention things that normally would not get get uh to the attention of our listeners well that's fascinating i, I think if anything that would if someone were inclined to call us gatekeepers sort of elitist exclusionist jerk faces, which we, which I've definitely been accused of being in the past. They might point to that as evidence because if you just talk about the, whatever's at the hotness or whatever's most popular or most recent, that might be more coextensive with what, uh, I don't know, maybe not. And the other Something thing that about. might be, the other thing that, that sometimes says that, uh, you don't play the game enough to understand it properly. You need multiple plays. You can't just play it one or two times yeah. to fully understand how the intricacies of these this game this game is. So they might say, you know, you're you're not giving a proper representation of the games because you're not playing it enough. I I, I agree. The the thing that I think is common to a lot of gatekeeping activity and a lot of sub hobbies is here are all the reasons why your opinion doesn't matter. Here are all the reasons why you don't get to have an opinion on all of these things. 
And although we try very hard, and it's one of the things that we is is core to our editorial viewpoint and our and our uh, our our reason for being, is to try to substantiate our views as much as possible. But one thing that I just want to make very clear that that often isn't uh, more clear in the middle of a review: people can like whatever they like for whatever reason they want to. There are games that I hate, and I think there. Sometimes I'll even go so far as to say that it's indicative of bad game design. But there's nothing stopping you from loving whatever it is you love. And I am okay with that. Go forth and, and, and sin no more. Like any, like no matter what game you're talking about, if somebody's like, yeah, I, I, it's just really what I enjoy doing. Like, yeah, great. Good for you. Enjoy doing what you're doing. I, I think that's fine until it comes into a, like a public setting. Right. There's the, a lot of the reading I did. Some of the pushback was, well, I, I came here to do X. You know, and and you came here to do why? That's nothing to do with me. Uh, oh, right. So you know, sure. why should I have to, you know, uh, not do my X because you want to do Y? And I think, well, that's very convenient for you. So go ahead into your bubble and be complacent about the problem, and 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 not and you know, perpetuate this problem. No, I agree. I think you've touched on one of the reasons why gatekeeping is so particularly toxic to board gaming. Number one, because it's a little more niche than some other interests. But number two, our hobby, even now, under current conditions, survives only because of social compromise. That's the only way we get anything done. Sometimes the stars align and... Exactly the people you want to play a game with all desperately want to play the game that you want to play. That's fine. That's great. That's wonderful. But by and large, our hobby is characterized by social compromise with people you don't necessarily know very well and coming together and engaging in a highly artificial social arrangement. And so in that context and given those those necessary uh, predicates, gatekeeping can be desperately destructive. Agreed. And they also, uh, some of the other things they were saying were, well, I've never seen it in my store. I've never seen it myself, so uh, it's not really a problem. Uh, I, I, I'm sure they, they mean what they say. I, uh, here I am gatekeeping about gatekeeping, right? But, <laughs> uh, I, I find it hard to believe that people could have been in the tabletop hobby, whatever manifestation, whether it's miniatures, tabletop role playing, whatever, uh, like, and not seen any of the kind of, rank dismissiveness towards women, people of color, new gamers, young people, old people, whatever. Like, you name the group. And I've seen people make very, very firm assumptions on what kind of gamer they are, whether they get to call themselves a gamer. Like, And this is one of the ways, uh, I'd like to stress, that we in board gaming are very much behind video gaming, I think. Like, by about 10 to 15 to 20 years. Because I feel like video games have become mainstream and people have accepted and understood that gamers come in all different kinds of shapes, sizes, and backgrounds because everyone plays games on their phone, they play solitaire on their computer, what have you. Uh, and I think as a culture, video gamers did a very good job of saying, like, if you play video games, you are a video gamer. We don't get to look down our nose and say, well, you don't play the right kind of video games. And I still feel that when it comes to board gaming, uh, like, I don't do this consciously. I hope I don't do it unconsciously either. It's like, oh, you just play, uh, you just play bridge or euchre. You're not really a, a, a hobbyist gamer the way I am. You just play crokinole or you just play name name the game, Cards Against Humanity. Well, I have other objections to that. Or even even Catan or Ticket to Ride, like which are very very niche hobby games. 
And I hear people make dismissive comments about those those gamers all the time. Yeah, I had that sort of as my closing remark is that I sometimes get labeled as snooty when it comes to like mainstream board games like Clue or Monopoly or that. Mm-hmm. But when people start talking to me about games that are like over 75 years old, old, it's just kind of painful. And and it's not so much as that they're bad games, or I think they're like old, tired mechanics. It's it's more of a, of, uh, I want to push them out of their comfort zone. These are games that they've seen in the big box stores at year in and year out. So that's all they, that's all they know. So I'm not saying it's bad that they like these games. I just sort of want to bring, bring them out of that, of that sphere and show them that there's this whole other world of stuff out there. So it's not, I'm not trying, it's, it comes off sometimes as being, oh, you play Monopoly or, you know, Catan, that's, that's, that's really cute, you know, congratulations. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, there's over a thousand games that come out every year. And, and you know, in, in my, where I work, we get those box games all the time. And I always make, you know, make comments like, Oh, are we going to like put those over with the eight tracks or, you know, stuff like that. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not being, I'm not being dismissive of, of the games themselves. It's just the fact that, you know, there's just, just, they're just, well, no, he, you know, here, always in our face. Here's the thing. Here's, here's the tension. I think here's how I would situate it. And you can agree or disagree. I think being dismissive of a game is one thing. I think it's okay to identify certain games as being badly designed or mediocre or outdated or even so far as to say trash. I think it's also worth worth, uh, noting that there are lots of games that it's important to identify and interrogate the ways in which I think they're culturally and morally problematic. Cards Against Humanity, some of the games about colonialism, you know, obviously, like we've talked about this a lot before. But there's a difference between that and that's what we do we are game critics right we want to try to pick apart these things and understand how they work and talk about it but there's a difference between that and the people that like them that's the key difference for me because when you start then judging the people that like them judging games is one thing but judging the people that like them that's the problematic part if somebody comes up to me and says as as was the case with the terrorist that little eight-year-old terrorist who ruined my afternoon uh you know i love monopoly monopoly is my favorite game I think the appropriate response to that person is, you are one of us. You are a board gamer. You are a member of my tribe. But maybe I could interest you in something else. (laughs) (laughs) While still accepting that the answer may very well be no. I mean, you and I have talked about this over the years many, many times. People are going to like what they want to like. And sometimes it's tricky. You can try to show them a wider world, but you have to be willing to accept that many people are not interested in that wider world. They want to play Catan for the 200th time. That's what they want to do. And that's cool. We want to play the 7,000th new game for the first time. That's equally perverse, albeit in a different way. And that's okay. But the underlying point is, and this this is the trick about, about gatekeeping, that doesn't make us more of a gamer than them. It just makes us gamers of a different bent. We're all part of the same group. We're all part of the same subculture. We're just enjoying it in slightly different ways. That's the line for me. Games can be trash, but gamers aren't. Yeah, and it, if you have, it's it's what I always say is like just knowing your crowd, right? Like read the if, room. If you have, if read the room, know when it's if if you need to interject or just or not say anything. And it's and the, another line I have here: if if you are the organizer or you are the store owner. 
then it is your job to make these people feel welcome. And if they don't feel welcome, then you are doing something wrong. It is your fault and you are part of the problem. Absolutely. Well, not even necessarily fault, but you have to look at your behavior and see what you can do to change. We don't necessarily want to ascribe blame to this necessarily because sometimes gatekeeping happens by accident. Sometimes gatekeeping happens out of uh, genuine enthusiasm. And sometimes gatekeeping even happens from a desire to be inclusive. So I don't necessarily want to castigate everyone who, who, who engages in the behavior. I mean, I, I, again, I do this accidentally all the time. And and for me, what I tr- what the standard that, that, I, that I try to have is elitism without exclusion, right? Some games are better than others. Some games should be promoted more than others. But that doesn't mean that we should exclude the people that like the games that we don't think are as good. Because it's important to have standards. It would be hard to be game critics without having standards. But at the same time, without excluding anybody. And this, I just want to turn back to something I, I said two weeks ago. When I conceded that despite my preference for rulebooks over videos, video explanations, this kind of had a gatekeeper aspect. It was only in the sense that... Uh, I think I had I had struck the balance a little bit too far towards the elitism aspect. I will defend rule books over video game explanations, and I will still defend that for all the reasons that I said. The trick is I have to make clear that for anybody for any other reason that prefers a video explanation over a rule book, I shouldn't be denigrating their participation in the hobby. I shouldn't be talking about how they're you know they're approaching the game from the wrong perspective or they're less of a good game or whatever. That's all that I'm talking about. And that's the kind of note that I find sometimes hard to strike. And I appreciate it when you were able to pull me back into a slightly more welcoming tone. All right. I have some other ways people can gatekeep here. My notes are very disjointed because I couldn't think of uh, a clear chain here. Sure. Uh, Sometimes uh, when because of this big influx of of new gamers that we have, sometimes people feel as though uh, the resources are being... diverted more to light and gateway and party games. So that means the games they like are now getting less attention from the designers and publishers, right? So they get upset. There was some good remarks on Twitter, very much in the same way that the video game community said, if you play Bejeweled or Solitaire or Minesweeper, congratulations, you're a video gamer. In the same way that intro games, gateway games, party games, a lot of those are really, really good games, even independently of the fact that regardless of what you play, you're still a, you're still a board gamer. Some of our favorite games are these intro party games. We'll defend Cockroach Poker. We'll defend Skull. We'll defend Dexterity Games to our dying breath. These are solid, quality pieces of work. And despite the fact that we also both like the crunchier Euros and all these other, uh, these other kinds of games, I welcome that the market can ebb and flow and shift and accommodate people in lots of different ways. Yeah, like yeah, there's, I have that as too. There's stigmas to party games, dexterity games, like you said, lightweight, gateway, children's role playing games. The one the stigmas against role playing games is is thankfully uh, is quickly being washed away. That it was, you know, ten to fifteen years ago. Yeah, we're, but, we're getting uh, a lot better at a lot of these issues day by day in the hobby. There's also, I would also point out that there's also a stigma sometimes against. You know, your heavier Euro games because they look, they tend to look drab and they tend to be dry and longer rule books. There's stigmas against all kinds of games depending on the group. And it's okay to like what you like. But again, it's important to welcome everyone, even if they tend to like things that you don't. Yeah, like the same. There's that the Ameritrash versus the Euro thing that was not so long ago. And that's practically washed away as well. Thank goodness. Yeah. And then, you know, there's the people that know all the designer names and know all the publishers, you know. And, you know, they said, you know, well, that's another Martin Wallace, Reiner Knizia collaboration, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, they take great pride in knowing 
everything about every game. Right? Why are you looking when, at me like that, Walker? I don't know what you're talking about, Mark. <laughs> well, but again, it, 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 if you leverage, if you try to leverage that kind of knowledge in an effort to make available a wider world to a new gamer, that's one thing. If you use it just because you're being a know-it-all jerk face, that's a different matter entirely. As to which one I am more often, I will let the viewers decide. <laughs> but I do feel that comparatively, our hobby is a little more accepting and helpful than most. Like when you look at a lot of the the media, the forums, and or where you ask questions and look for help, when you compare it to, say, uh, Magic the Gathering or video games or mm. uh, some miniature games, I think I feel the board game community is a bit on the on the lighter side. That's a good point. I mean, I, I, I think it depends on which aspect of inclusion and which aspect of gatekeeping you're emphasizing. I will agree with you entirely based on what I have heard that if people are asking for strategy advice – or information like that, then the tone tends to be a lot better. I've, I and I've talked to Huey about this sometimes as well. If you ask for help to beat a certain boss in a video game or what have you, you're going to get a, you might often get a stream of get good nub L2P. And you don't tend to get that as much in board gaming, but I, I don't have enough experience to generalize that to say we're necessarily more welcoming. Um, I think about how we still have you know, uh, heavily gendered language in a lot of game rulebooks were getting better, but it's still there. And that's gatekeeping. That's communicating to people what kind of gamer they expect exists. It's the stereotype of a gamer. And if you don't fit into that mold, you're going to get excluded. That's gatekeeping at its worst. I think about the way women and minorities are depicted in game art and about how that's gatekeeping and about how, again, communicating that this is for the consumption of a very particular kind of person. And there I think we've got a very, very long way to go. And just all the ways in which we deploy terminology and presentation to communicate to, to vast swaths of people that this is not for them. Yeah, so what we're trying to say is that it's not our job to go out and stop the gatekeepers, but we just have to make up for them. We have to make sure that <laughs> we're putting our best foot forward, we're, that we're being super welcoming, that we're calling out all of these all of these you know points that you just talked about and making sure we're bringing it to attention, not not to shame or anything, but just so we can show people that it is still a problem. We're not trying to cancel anyone or, 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 you know, put people down. We just want to make sure that people understand that this is still an ongoing problem. Yeah. And writing that line as, and I, I suspect many of our listeners are somewhat more experienced in the hobby or more uh, play more games or, or have been exposed to more games than your average new gamer. And again, it's about using that knowledge, using that authority that you might have, using that stature that you might have in a way to facilitate people's entrance and to facilitate people's deepening of experience in the hobby rather than using that influence and power purely as a means to make yourself look good, much less actively exclude people who might be new. And and again, I it's I don't like new people, all right? I'll just say it. I'm I'm socially awkward, which will not surprise anybody, I'm sure. New people are scary. I don't find them very pleasant. But as I said, this hobby exists and this hobby will survive only when we are able to socialize with strangers. That's the only way that this hobby grows, I think. And so it's the job of people who want the hobby to thrive to get over it 
if they find that difficult. Some people, very different from me, thrive on making new acquaintances and love being around new people. Good on them. The hobby needs more of them and fewer people like me. But insofar as it has people like me, I need to get over myself and work harder. Lastly for me is that I'm sure all of you get this wonderful feeling when you're playing a game that you love and you need to, and I'm sure you want everyone to feel that way. You just have to remember that everyone feels that in a different way with different games. It's not about the game. It's about the people and just understand that everyone interprets and, and, and experiences things differently than everybody else. Well put Walker. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. It's for so very wrong about games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just roll to dice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.